This podcast, this podcast is brought to you by the Witt School of Governance. For more information, visit visit their website on www.wits.ac.za/wsg. This is the first in a series of ten webinars on a range of thematic areas linked to the governance debates and governance practices. My name is Ivor Sarikinski. I'm a professor at the Witt School of Governance, and my main area of teaching and research is in governance, and I'm a regular commentator on public and contemporary affairs as they relate to governance issues. So we're going to discuss the issue, what is governance? And before we do that, let me quickly say a little bit about our master's offering. I designed it with the support of numerous colleagues. And what we have in place is a flexible, innovative master's structure that has governance running through all the themes, but enabling students to make choices as to where they want to focus their interests in terms of governance. So we've got social security, we've got public policy, we've got management and governance, development and economics, peace and security, a whole range of options. And students choose and the coursework is 50% and the research report is the other 50%. And we believe that this modular innovative approach is exactly what's needed in terms of producing students and graduates who can work within a rapidly changing public and private governance environment. Very fluid. And our program is all about critical thinking, problem-solving, innovative approaches to governance in that regard. So that's the blurb and that's the advertisement. And now let me begin a discussion of the topic for today, which is what is governance? And a huge burden on me to discuss what is governance. And as a way of introduction into the complexity of this topic, let me use an analogy. About 200 odd years ago, very well-known famous German idealist philosopher, Immanuel Kant, wrote a very short essay called What is Enlightenment? And this essay shaped thinking about the Enlightenment for two centuries and is still a major milestone in the attempt to understand what modernity is in relation to earlier forms of thinking and society. Now, his task was really easy because by the time he wrote that essay, it was quite clear what enlightenment was. The use of reason, the use of data and evidence, information and engagement, deductive reasoning, thought processes to understand and interpret the world and human behavior so as to improve and manage the world and human behavior. A major consensus, and he consolidated that consensus in his very short yet influential essay. To answer the question, what is governance, is so much harder. Immanuel Kant had it easy on that one. Trying to clarify exactly what governance is, is very difficult. And the reason for that is that there's no consensus amongst practitioners and academics on what this simple word means. 
everyone has their own definition. Everyone looks at governance in their own way. And that means that it's very difficult to establish exactly what it is we're talking about when we use this word governance. And to complicate it even more, in professional environments, whether in the public sector or private sector, governance is thrown around repeatedly, 100 times a day. You'll hear the word governance this, governance that. And yet there isn't this clarity on what governance actually is. And yet when practitioners talk about governance, they don't define what it is and what they mean by governance. And that means that the burden of unpacking governance is quite a heavy one. And that's what I'm going to try and do in the session. And then we'll have a Q&A. So let's start off trying to establish what governance means. Some people conflate governance with accountability. And I would suggest that accountability is part of governance, but it's not simply governance. And you see accountability used in this way in a lot of the literature in management circles. Performance data is used as a means, a database to enforce and ensure that people are held accountable for their action. So the whole debate about performance budgeting, performance contracting, results-based management is about accountability in terms of you said you were going to do this, what did you do, and you hold people accountable for a possible gap in terms of intent and achievement. So that's a small part of the governance debate. Other thinkers in the governance debate, especially from the Dutch school, Koiman and others, talk about governance in terms of alignment. And here the thinking is that in modern society, complex societies, you've got a range of actors, you've got a range of institutions all trying to do the right things, similar things to achieve a common purpose. And governance is the way you achieve that alignment in terms of defining the tasks, the responsibilities of actors in this broader strategic movement in taking society and organizations, public and private organizations as well, in the same direction to achieve common goals. So alignment, coordination is often used in this context as well in terms of governance. Some of the literature identifies 17 different meanings of governance. I'm not going to go through all of them. We don't have the time, and some of them, I think, are quite boring. So I'm just picking out some of the key ones. Another theme you'll see in governance in terms of trying to conceptualize it is the idea of networks. So governance isn't about the state, the government. Governance is about public institutions coordinating and interacting with private actors outside of public institutions to achieve common purposes. So networks, multi-stakeholder arrangements is what governance is. And the idea here is that old ideas about governing are inappropriate in a complex modern environment or contemporary environment. You need to coordinate a range of stakeholders and players into an action to achieve a common goal. Government can't do it all anymore, if it ever could. So governance is simply stakeholder management. And you'll see a lot of that in the literature in terms of that view. A more recent view on governance, quite an interesting one, I think, is that governance 
isn't simply a process of doing things. Governance is a way of doing things. And the emphasis here comes out of the Canadian school, where they don't talk about leadership in organizations, public or private. They talk about custodianship. And the idea here is that governance is about co-production. In complex societies, contemporary societies, with challenges and problems that have numerous dimensions and facets, it's not easy to define the problem, and it's even harder to even think about solutions to the problems you've defined. And the idea here is that governance is a custodianship process where you work with groups of people to clarify what the problem is and how you're going to solve it. Hence, custodianship. You don't lead it. You facilitate it. And the process will depend on how your network, in a sense, how your stakeholders contribute to problem definition and problem solution. So very open-ended approach to governance in that regard. And in the literature, you'll see all of these broad definitions of governance. What they all have in common is a very clear rejection that governance is about compliance. Compliance is an important part of governance, but compliance in and of itself is certainly not governance because you can have malicious compliance where people comply tick boxing just to make the paperwork go away without actually doing the work that should be done. This is a major challenge with performance approaches to accountability because you can game the incentives in your performance structure. And that's why that approach to governance in terms of performance accountability is quite narrow and quite problematic. So governance isn't about compliance, but it involves compliance. So we're talking a lot about what governance might be, what governance certainly isn't, and we still haven't said what governance is. And I'm going to leave that right until the end in terms of me making a suggestion as to what a useful way of thinking about governance is. So a whole range of steps in the argument need to be made now in order to get a much better sense of what this governance thing is. What is governance? Let me outline a couple of component elements that all governance approaches should include. And this, I think, will give us a sense of what governance is. Let's define it by what it is in terms of its elements rather than defining it in terms of an abstract definition first. So governance is about participation. And in the private sector, you've got participation in terms of shareholders. In the public sector, you've got participation through elections and ongoing consultative processes. So you've got to have participation. And effective governance in this context is systems which enable people to have a meaningful say in shaping how decisions are made and how decisions are implemented. So we back now to this issue of a system, a process, which enables people to voice a view, to process a view, to deliberate on a view, and then to execute a consensus that comes out of this participatory process. And that is common to corporate governance and public governance. So participation is important. 
The literature talks about a whole range of others. I'm not going to go through all of them. I just want to focus on a couple of key ones. So from participation, we get to complicated issues here in terms of mechanisms. And let's just run through a couple of, of simple ones. Rule of law. Governance has to include rule of law. And again, it's not compliance rule of law. When we talk about rule of law in terms of governance, we're talking about procedure governing behavior, rule-based behavior. And the issue here is that there has to be consequence for bad behavior, and there has to be reward for good behavior. So a behavioral psychological element creeping into this rule of law element, because you, you do have to have a degree of compliance for society to function. An example I often use uh, with my students is, why does it sometimes take 40 minutes to cross an intersection in rush hour on the way to the office? It's because everyone creeps over the line trying to grab the robot just as it turns orange and red. And because everyone's doing that from four sides, you get a traffic jam in the middle and it takes everyone much longer. So you need some consensus, some voluntary compliance to the basic rules in order for society to operate and move along reasonably, effectively, especially in terms of organizations. And you need to punish those who clearly break the rules. And you clearly also need to reward those who go beyond the call of duty in terms of compliance. And that's, I think, the idea of rule of law being a component of this governance undefined thing. And then we get on to the more familiar ones. Transparency. You've got to have transparency in terms of governance. And transparency is a complicated one. It sounds simple, but it's sometimes not. And if we define transparency broadly as access to information, stakeholders in, practitioners inside public and private institutions, providing information, making information accessible, on how they operate, how they perform, how they make decisions, that whole data evidence base being available, then I think we've got a broad sense of, of what we mean by transparency. But we have to also acknowledge that transparency isn't absolute in governance. It has to be limited. And it's this that causes the trouble and the conflict and the controversy in the governance debate where unnecessary or irrational or obviously obstructionist intentions lie behind limiting information flow. So some are obvious. A company operating bidding for a tender can't put its tender bid into the public domain because market-sensitive information, you want to keep that as private for as long as possible. If you want the tender, then you have to make that information available. So that's a constraint. Another constraint would be government. You want to build a water pipeline. You've got to access land. If you announce too early that you're going to build a pipeline along a certain route, the property owners there are going to jack their prices up significantly. Whereas if you had a special purpose vehicle to buy the land at a fair market price at the time, you would probably get a better deal. So transparency flow of information, much more complicated. And the judiciary always ends up ruling on what is reasonable and what is fair and what is legitimate as a constraint on the flow of information. 
So we're starting now to see that governance isn't straightforward. It's not absolute. It's not either good or bad. There are lots of grays. There's lots of, of shades in the two extremes of ineffective and uh, effective. So with transparency comes accountability. What is accountability? You have responsible for what you do and what you're supposed to do. There's reporting and you have to explain why you did or didn't achieve your goals. Explain or complain. The explain is why I didn't. The complain is you didn't have the resources. You weren't uh, given clear terms of reference. You didn't have an appropriate budget. And that explains why you couldn't do what uh, you were supposed to do. And this accountability occurs in public institutions through line management. It, it goes all the way to political accountability in terms of the interface between your minister and your head of department at national, provincial, and local level, a very, very contentious interface in terms of interference compared to accountability. Major governance challenge exactly at that point. And then you've got accountability in terms of parliament, holding the executive to account, legislatures at national, provincial, and local level, holding the executive, the heads of state, the cabinet, premiers, MECs, mayors and members of mayoral committees to account in terms of what they are doing in terms of the mandates they have in a democracy. Complicated issues in terms of accountability, in terms of the bureaucratic structure, the system that enables reporting for accountability to take place. A weak system in terms of information flow, hence the transparency, undermines accountability because you don't have information to hold people accountable for their actions. Complexities that we can tease out in the Q&A later. So accountability is, is, is clear, and we've got that in place. And then we get um, oversight. And oversight and accountability aren't the same thing. They mean different things, although they linked, they connected. So what is oversight? Oversight includes accountability. An oversight committee in parliament can hold the executive to account. The constitution gives them the power to do that. And that's really important. And we saw that yesterday in terms of the communications portfolio committee exercising that constitutional power of oversight of the executive. All good things. So it includes accountability, but it's stronger than accountability because when we talk about oversight, we're including issues like uh, supervision. We're talking about issues related to correction. We're talking about advice. So when we talk about oversight in terms of the governance debate, it means that your oversight body has authority to intervene in various matters to make sure that decision-making and execution occurs better than it otherwise was happening. And straight away, you can see now how this creates opportunities for influence peddling and political interference. Politicians call a bureaucrat to account, and instead of accountability, oversight becomes interference. Don't do it like that. Do it like this. And you open up a whole can of worms in terms of what might be going on behind the scenes. So sometimes one has to be careful what one wishes for in terms of the governance debate. Uh, you can have serious unintended consequences sometimes. Again, accountability and oversight operate in the private sector in terms of corporate governance. That's the whole issue of the board. 
what's the role of the board is to make sure that the executive is held to account and is supported and advised on how to solve various issues to meet targets and the performance agreements that are already in place. So all of these mechanisms that I'm talking about apply across private and public sector, and we'll spell this out in a bit more detail shortly. From oversight, the next issue is ethics. What is ethics? Why is ethics important in the governance debate? And uh, if ethics is a systematic way of encouraging and guiding people in organizations to do the right things, then ethics is a problem. Because how do you get people to act ethically in organizations should they come into organizations unethical? In other words, they come from backgrounds, educational, world experiences that make them unethical, that they seek to enrich and enhance themselves in public and private organizations at the expense of the common good, the common purpose of the organization or the government, etc. Not that easy to make unethical people ethical. So you'll see a lot of workshops advertised in the public sector, in the private sector, to encourage ethical awareness and to change behavior through these workshops. I won't say that they're ineffective, but it's difficult to measure their effectiveness. Ethics is one of those things that is not easily managed. And what you see happening in the governance debate is that often instead of ethics, you'll see a phrase used commonly, integrity management. So if people don't have the right values, and if they don't comply with value system, you put in place a bureaucratic system to manage integrity. And this will be your conventional disclosures, conflicts of interest, and a whole range of other mechanisms to ensure that people behave themselves appropriately in organizations, not releasing market-sensitive information or policy-sensitive information. So again, you can have the best system to manage integrity, but if the people whose integrity you're trying to manage don't want to comply, circumvention, malicious compliance becomes quite easy to do. So to use an example here in the Public Service Commission manages declarations for all senior officials at national and provincial level. The compliance rate for signing those documents is around 60%. It's gone up. It used to be around 50%. So 40% of officials who should sign those documents aren't even signing them with no consequence. So straight away, you've got a flaw in your integrity management system. Doesn't mean people will behave badly because they haven't signed. It just means that it's very difficult to make sure that an integrity management system functions effectively in terms of regulating behavior. In China, they use integrity management. If there's suspicion you behave badly, there'll be a tribunal. And if uh, the tribunal finds you guilty, you could find yourself in front of a firing squad. Hmm. Quite extreme. That's not all. Your family would lose all access to social benefits and state-provided health care and education. And why they do it like that is to increase the costs of bad behavior to disincentivize it through this application of integrity management. 
So there you've got an example of a harsh approach to integrity management rather than a developmental nurturing approach to integrity management. It's punitive. And the idea is to send a message sharply to as many people as possible that this kind of behavior is going to make you worse off and your family significantly worse off if you do all the wrong things. So straight away now, in mentioning all of these aspects of governance, these interlinked mechanisms that combine to make up governance, we're starting to get a, a sense of what this is all about. But I'm still not going to tell you what I think the definition of governance is. I'm going to hold that back until right until the end of my time to speak to you. I want now to go off in a slightly different direction. And I want to demarcate between three main types of governance. The first one is public governance, the basic structure of a democratic society where you've got your judiciary, your legislature, and your executive, and the judiciary and the legislature have powers of oversight and accountability over the executive and the judiciary over the legislature as well. Everything is law-based and has to be rational within the parameter of what the rules are, and the judiciary interprets that. All that's pretty straightforward. Then you've got your parliamentary accountability oversight of the executive. You've got your accountability oversight of political heads over administrative heads. And you've got accountability in terms of how the line function reports and how consequences are managed in terms of that uh, reporting process. And in a sense, that is part of the public governance challenge. You need quality institutions effective institutions to enable all of that to happen. If you have that, your reporting, your accountability, your oversight, your performance will be of a higher level. I won't say perfect. Governance isn't about perfection. It's about being as close to the upper end of the spectrum as possible. And clearly, if your systems are weak, if they're flawed, if they can be circumvented, if there aren't consequences, you'll be closer to the ineffective scale. And this is why we talk about capable and failed states. It's the system that manages how these governance functions are performed and managed. And in a democracy, the key issue here is how the election itself is managed in terms of governance. So you can't have transparency in terms of what voters vote for but you can have transparency on a whole range of other issues in terms of the process of how the election is managed. We're very lucky in South Africa, the IEC is world-class, and they make a lot of information available, and that enables oversight, accountability, improvement, correction of error. But imagine a country holding elections with less robust systems. Do the results have credibility? And if they don't have credibility, what's the implication of that? So ineffective governance can contribute to political instability. Effective governance in terms of managing the election, which enables all those other powers and functions to be performed, can contribute to stability, all part of the, the governance debate. Corporate governance, King Commission, ethics, the role of the board, major issues. So the board performs the oversight of 
the executive, which is the CEO and other office holders, and shareholders meet with the board and the CEO once a year at the annual general meeting. And this is set out in the Companies Act, and it's advised in terms of the King Commission. King Commission is not law. It's a protocol which is advisable. Companies Act is enforceable. So companies that comply with the King Commission are supposed to do better, perform better because of accountability, transparency, engagement, uh, and all of the things we've spoken about. All good and well there. Not that easy to get companies to comply because you've got good governance clashing with a profit motive, return on investment, and sometimes making a buck means that you've got to conduct your business in an unsustainable way. And what I mean by unsustainable way is maybe invest in something that is not good for the environment, but is very profitable. Coal, oil, lithium in Bolivia now, with modern battery technology being examples of this. So corporate governance has attention in terms of the clash between profit motive and doing the right thing, the ethics that King Commission 4 talks about. All of this is much more complicated in state-owned enterprise governance. Very, very important area of governance. And state-owned enterprise governance is a combination of the public governance that I've mentioned earlier and the corporate governance that I've just discussed. So all that remains in place. Let me just focus quickly on what the differences are. In state-owned enterprises, who's the shareholder? It's not a large number of people who own varying amount of shares who are invited to attend the AGM once a year. The shareholder is the state, and the representative of the shareholder is the relevant minister. So it's a political process. It's a political head who represents the shareholder, and that changes everything. It's politics. State-owned enterprises aren't driven solely by a profit motive. They have to be sustainable in the sense of covering their costs, but contributing to development in society. So doing some things that are unprofitable and doing other things that are profitable to balance it out so that you make society better off through the provision of infrastructure, goods and services. So the performance card of SOE is very different from the performance card of a private sector company. But let's come back to the minister, the representative of the shareholder. The board is supposed to perform oversight of the executive in the state-owned enterprise, the CEO and others. Now, the King Commission says to be a member of a board and the Companies Act reinforces this. You've got to have experience, qualifications, etc. But this is politics now. So who determines who's on the board? The minister. So straight away, your board is going to be political. Who appoints the CEO? The board, which is political, appointing a CEO who is in all likelihood going to be political as well. So the whole environment of state-owned enterprise governance is highly politicized, and that impacts on how these processes we've spoken about and the appointment of people to these offices uh, changes. I won't go into the detail about boards and the offices of all of that. I'm trying to talk a bit more generally now. So strictly speaking, the minister appoints the board and the board takes over and you have your AGM. And that's where the shareholder rep 
and the chair of the board and the board and the CEO get together to discuss the next year's performance uh, objectives. But because of this context, the possibility is not excluded of the CEO going to the minister and saying, I'm trying to help you, but the chair of the board doesn't let me do what needs to be done. You need to help me. And on the other hand, the chair of the board could run to the minister and say, I'm trying to do the right thing, but the CEO is obstructing me, and that's why we're not achieving our goals. So straight away, you can see there's a triangle there. And that triangle is a real problem in terms of the coherent functioning at a governance level, corporate governance level, of state-owned enterprises. And there have been various attempts to clarify this. Presidential uh, review of state-owned enterprises that was released some years back tried to clarify the roles of the minister, the, the chair, and the CEO in terms of agreed contracting at the beginning of a financial year to stabilize that relationship. And we've seen that that hasn't worked. And the latest proposal by President Ramaphosa is to set up a special state-owned enterprise governance council. And we'll see what comes out of, of that. So there we've got different organizations doing governance in terms of similar themes with challenges embedded in all of them in different ways. And that maybe means that it's appropriate now to start to move into what does all of this mean for governance to help us get a definition in terms of what governance means. So right at the beginning, I set out what a whole range of other people and thinkers think about the meaning of governance. What is governance? And now I want to take the discussion off in a slightly different tack in terms of presenting a way of thinking about governance, which includes everything that I've just said, but gives it a focus. And the point I want to make uh, in doing this is that governance can't be governance for governance sake. That means it can't just be compliance, it can't just be reporting, it can't just be accountability, oversight, et cetera, et cetera, for the sake of doing that. There has to be a purpose in doing all of that. And what is that purpose? And I think that if we think about governance and the purpose of governance, we start to get to the definition of what governance is in a useful way and avoid the complicated definitional disputes that academics get involved in because maybe they've got too much time on their hands. Me excluded. So what is the purpose of governance? And I would argue that the purpose of governance is that you have governance to make your organizations, public or private, responsive to the needs of society, to the needs of communities, to the needs of individuals. So governance is there to make institutions responsive and responsive in the sense of correcting errors in terms of what works and what doesn't work, but at the same time adapting to changed circumstances. So I think that when we talk about governance, it's more appropriate to think about governance in terms of responsiveness, in terms of the process that steers society towards a set or a goal that has been reached through consensus. So in terms of strategic planning, 
you set out your goals and you have governance mechanisms in place that enable you to keep track of your goals, to adapt, to modify where necessary, but not to lose sight of what those goals are. And in that sense, I would argue that governance is about steering, not the doing. The doing is the bureaucracy. The doing is the CEO. The board, parliament, is the steering process of governance. The vision setting, the the target setting, the goal setting, and then the assessment of how close we are, how far away we are from achieving those goals. So we're steering the ship towards a goal, like a captain steers a ship from one part of the world to another. And that's why I argue that governance mechanisms are so important, and I won't repeat them all now. But the more effective your governance processes are, the better your steering, the more likely you are to achieve your goals significantly, never completely, but significantly the more likely you are to use the scarce resources you have more efficiently. The less effective your governance processes are, the less likely you are to achieve any of that. And that tells us a lot uh, if we use the Auditor General's reports on municipal governance that have been in the media for good reason of late. 258 municipalities, 8% of them clean audits. And then we look at the delivery deficits in so many municipalities. The steering, the correction has failed because of significant governance failures. So I want to add another term here, a governance failure. And a governance failure is a failure of accountability, a failure of oversight, a failure of participation. In other words, moribund, fragile institutions that operate for themselves as opposed to responding to the needs of communities in order to achieve the needs, the desires of citizens, of organizations, of investors in the broader context, depending on what area of governance we're talking in. So in conclusion, I've I've introduced uh, right at the end the idea of governance success, governance failure. And I want to suggest that governance failure is not the same thing as government failure. Government failure is something that occurs through an information asymmetry in terms of responding to a complicated problem. Government sometimes misunderstands the problem due to poor information and therefore the policy response is inappropriate. A governance failure means that there's a a systemic inability to do the oversight, the corrections, the responsiveness to keep the organization, the government, the entity on track in terms of achieving the strategic goals that have been set through an earlier uh, set of of, of processes. And maybe that helps clarify some of the the complexities around governance. So I'm right on track, and and that means that we've got 15 minutes for discussion and conversation. So let me stop now and let me hand over to Kamantha so that she can uh, manage the Q&A session. Thank you so much, Carl. So the first question we have is from Colin Maguire, and he wants to know what framework determines what is and is not ethical, and who decides on the framework? So what determines a framework being ethical or, or, or not, and who determines it? Correct. 
this is a big debate in ethical leadership debates. And if one looks at the literature on ethical leadership, it comes very close to custodianship in that instead of a a leader, you have a custodian who builds a process of co-production of what the values of the organization are that should structure and guide the behavior of everyone in that organization. So you almost create a social contract in terms of the values that guide, shape, structure the performance and the functioning of the organization. So no absolutes here. So values from belief systems, whether they are faith-based or cultural, can inform that. You could have an ethicist consultant come in and help one derive through philosophical processes ethical values to inform your process. That is often how, how organizations are doing it. There's an organization called the Ethics Institute, which helps to do that. So I guess the short answer to that question is establish what the most appropriate ethics are to your organization and embed them through a co-production process so that you, you have a sustainable ethical set of conduct criteria to, to govern how your organization works. And often the framework is shaped around do no harm and harm defined in terms of the particular activities of that organization. So that would be my my answer to that question. Thank you so much. I think we're sticking with the theme of ethics because the next question is from Tadala. And it says, don't you think bureaucratic structures perpetuate unethical conduct? How effective are bureaucratic structures in integrity management? Well, bureaucratic structures in and of themselves are neutral. They're a process in terms of step one, step two, step three, in terms of how instructions are passed down the hierarchy and how performance information is passed up the hierarchy. And that process can be either effective or ineffective. And it's obvious that it's desirable that they are more effective than ineffective because then you have all the better governance uh, benefits that I've, I've just spoken about. Now, the point that is being raised here by Tadala is a good one, and it's a difficult one. And that is that people in organizations, whether public or private, are not simply rational, task-driven, instrumental actors who take instruction and pass information on. This culture in bureaucracies, and you'll see the phrase used exactly like that in the literature, there's a culture. All bureaucracies have different cultures different values, different ways of doing things, different ways of dressing even. At one point in South Africa, national treasury officials always dressed in a certain suit to separate themselves out from officials in other departments. And that was the men and the women dress suits of a certain kind in a a similar way. So that was an attempt to establish an organizational culture. And it's often possible for that organizational culture to have unethical consequences in terms of harm to constituencies, etc. People not performing, withholding information, rent seeking, those are the kinds of behaviors that can become embedded in organizations 
that are clearly unethical. And this means that anyone who's in a management position in private or public institutions has to think carefully about how you you engage the values of the organization you're part of, how you reflect on those values, and how you change those values through a change management process to make them more appropriate in terms of what the organization is supposed to achieve. It sounds easy. It's so much harder to do in reality because you're dealing with real-life people who have interests and values and ways of doing things that might not be compatible with what your organization is designed to do or the strategic plan says it ought to do. And that means management has to make tough decisions at some point. Is this incompatibility uh, such that it's undermining the ability of the organization to function? And if it is, then one has to begin disciplinary processes. Uh, Managers have to manage. uh, And that's part of rule of law and consequence management that I spoke about earlier. Not easy to change the ethical culture of organization. Deep embedded in the office where people meet and have coffee and chat at the water tower. An important issue there. So let me stop there on, on that question. Sure. Nair wants to know, how can we ensure that governance in the public sector is not negatively affected by the political environment? Oh, the political environment. Oh, the big one. The big, big, big one. So in short, and it's a complicated answer, in short, it is desirable to have a clear boundary between party politics and government. So In a democracy, your party competes for the election. Through a process, you have a government forming, and the party then steps back, and the people who are in public office perform. And you see various degrees of that separation occurring in various countries. It's a real problem where there is too close a link between party and government in terms of public office bearers because then you have party politics directly impacting on the performance of government. And government has to play by the rules of the constitution, and it has to respond to the mandate received from all citizens, not just party members. So this starts to make things terribly complicated. And there are a whole range of issues here, and the constitutional court has ruled on numerous occasions on them, that public representatives swear an oath of office. And that means that they stop being overt political representatives to becoming public servants in terms of the greater good. And the ethics debate would be about inculcating that view of being obliged to perform your tasks in accordance with the constitution and other documents as opposed to being a party political actor in every sphere of your your public life as an elected or appointed representative. Easier said than done. There are a couple of things that can enhance that. And electoral systems are very important here. So we've got a proportional list system. Who controls that? The party bosses. The higher up the list you are, the better your chance of getting into public office. And that gives the party boss control over elected representatives in parliament. And arguments can be made that that has weakened accountability and oversight because your people in the legislature are the same party from people in the executive 
except the executive people are leaders in those organizations? And how can ordinary members hold leaders to account, even though they're in public institutions? And I think that the recent uh, constitutional court judgment on electoral systems has opened a window for us to reflect better on the rules of our electoral system to make it more accountability enabling than the current system. So that would be my response to that. A final word on that, effective systems in terms of recruitment and retention would ensure that you don't have the political abuse filter into the appointment processes at various levels of government around the world, that your selection processes would have a whole range of tests and criteria to ensure that even the politicos who get in have to have a basic level of competency. And that part of the quality institutions debate that you see in the context of East Asian tigers in terms of meritocratic appointments, effective governance, effective processes to get the right people into the right jobs in the public sector, ineffective governance, the opposite of that. So, so that's the answer to that question. Okay. Um, Dr. Mignotti wants to know, and I think this is a really good question, how, do, how does one balance the public governance and accelerated service delivery? There are a number of angles in answering that. And let me make a, a blanket statement first. Appliance with procurement processes does not automatically mean efficiency and effectiveness. So we're back now to this problem of compliance that I spoke about earlier. Through compliance, you can have malicious compliance where everything is in order, but you don't provide services. In other words, if you don't spend money building infrastructure, providing water, electricity, sewage, sanitation, etc., you'll get clean audits because there are no risks. Doing that stuff is risky. And I think that the short answer to linking governance to service delivery is to get the right people who know how the system works in terms of procurement to expedite decisions without compromising the quality of decision making, without getting bogged down in public service regulations, treasury practice notes on supply chain management. We need people who understand how those things work, who can expedite processes to enable the money to flow, to get spent in the right ways. And then we need uh, responsiveness and oversight in terms of the performance of the people doing that work. And I think that governance, as I've set it out, enables us to do that. And I think that that can speed up service delivery. So the process is important here. And we must be very clear, governance isn't red tape. That's the compliance problem. Governance is supply chain management that is designed in terms of business process engineering to get the best flow of resource to target area with the most amount of transparency, accountability, and oversight and quality delivery. And that's the governance engineering that I think is very exciting and uh, needs to be done more of in terms of public institutions, national, provincial, local, and SOEs as well. And I think also, finally, on this one, is ICT and computer-based technologies and machine learning have got a lot to add in terms of making all of that happen. 
it's not easy to cheat a, a computer system in terms of tendering and monitoring and milestones where all of that stuff is set up in terms of a learning language which monitors these things automatically. A good example, quickly to conclude this one, would be learner's license tests for driver's licenses at municipalities. It's now a, a, a multiple choice computer test where you pass or fail, and the person administering the test can't take a bribe to pass you. And that means that you get much more reliable results very quickly using technology. And I think that's an area to explore. So let me stop there, otherwise I can talk forever on this one. But yes, a very good question. Thank you. This is from one of our anonymous attendees. It says, why is it that in the South African context, the alignment is lacking in the system for governance? So for an example, the president announces this and the minister says something else. Again, a very complicated answer to a simple question. So let me make two points. First point, our intergovernmental relations system in terms of the relationships between national, provincial and local is only 25 odd years old. And that means that there's going to be a lot of learning in terms of adapting, fixing, fine tuning, so that we get a better alignment than what we currently have. Other decentralized systems like America have over 200 years of experience in terms of ironing out all the trouble that we're going through now. So what are the powers and functions of these different tiers? There's a lot that hasn't been explored and the judiciary is helping us clarify exactly what that is as cases are decided. So I think that there's a good acceptable case for non-alignment in terms of that. I think the second part of the answer is that communication is poor and I think that people who hold public office at various tiers of government don't communicate appropriately with each other or sometimes aren't aware of which page of the hymn sheet they're on when it comes to dealing with a particular service delivery problem. And the briefing notes to the MEC are different to the briefing notes of the minister, different to the briefing notes of the, the member of the mayoral committee. And hence, you get those mixed messages. And I don't think there's a very good excuse for that. I think that that is a management issue. Who's the custodian of that process? Is it a national department or provincial department? And they need to lead that process to ensure that there's a coherent message. And that's a sign of systems not being as good as they ought to be in terms of the governance content that I spoke about earlier. But let me leave it there. Okay, we have an, a few more questions. Uh, are you happy to go of just like 10 minutes more? Is that okay? Yes, no problem. Okay, so I'm going to try and summarize them so that everyone's questions get answered. So one of the respondents wants to know, who is the final, I'm assuming, person on governance matters? So I guess where the buck stops. And how can society or community members correct governance failures at, say, municipal levels? Where does the buck stop in governance? There are a number of bucks <laughs> that can stop in numerous places. So the first issue would be the effectiveness and the efficiency of a provincial municipal council to hold the executive arm under the mayor's leadership to account for performance. So ultimately, it would be the, the mayor and the mayor in relation to 
the member of the mayoral committee and the head of that department. The buck has to stop past with doing stuff and the legislature holds them to account in terms of the council. And I think the same applies at provincial level, the same applies at national level. So if you don't have that accountability, that oversight, you've got a governance failure, the inability of these governance processes to perform the result they're supposed to in terms of steering the organization in the right direction. How can communities get involved? Civil disobedience is always a very effective one. I don't mean uh, service delivery protests because those are often not service delivery based. They're often linked to the politics of the councillor and who should or shouldn't have got the job as councillor rather than the performance of the council. So civil disobedience is, is a good one. Protests, placards, engaging councillors at local level and getting councillors on board, the proportional representation councillors as well as the ward councillors and using ward committees much more effectively to get issues into council. And as a last resort, the courts. If there's dereliction of duty, if there is non-performance, non-responsiveness, the courts need to get involved. And our jurisprudence in South Africa has a long list of cases that are fundamental in terms of ruling on the responsiveness of institutions at national, provincial, and local level. Uh, the most recent one is Mkanda municipality being put under administration in terms of that court order of the, the Eastern Cape Division. So that would be my answer to that question. Thank you. Sean would like to know to what extent is governance a victim of or subject to the different ideological postures in different societies? He says that you define governance in democratic terms, but is governance in democratic South Africa the same one in relative less democratic Cuba, for an example? And does this difference necessarily point to which political system serves it better? That's a long question. Just let me know if you want me to repeat it. No, I got the gist of it. I would argue that governance is essentially process, and I've outlined the different processes of, of governance. And the ideology is, is part of the shaping of the direction that an organization or society wishes to go. And I would argue that in a democratic society, through an election, it's much easier to establish what that consensus is. And then the processes need to kick in to make sure that the, the objectives achieved through that democratic consensus are achieved. In countries that don't have multi-party democracy, uh, it's much harder to establish what the consensus is because you can't just take what the ruling party says in China or in Cuba or in any other country, because they claim to speak on behalf of the people without a clear process, without a clear mechanism of testing what it is that the people actually think, because they can't vote. So however imperfection a vote is, it does give us a sense of what that consensus is. But you can have effective processes in non-democratic countries in terms of the technical issues of their governance processes. And that's an argument that Francis Fukuyama made in a famous article of about uh, five or six years ago, where he defined governance in pure technical terms, irrespective of democracy. He since changed his view, partly because of the importance of democratic processes being part of governance. And a short answer to that is Amartya Sen comes in here 
in terms of democracy and human rights, allowing the flow of information to enable governments to correct. And if you don't have that flow of information through authoritarian systems, you can continue to do bad things continuously. And Amartya Sen says that's why in India, since democracy, there's never been a famine. doesn't mean there's been starvation. There hasn't been mass famine where people have died of starvation. That occurred pre-democracy in India because there was no feedback into bad policy. You see the same in Ethiopia under the Derg in the early 70s. No correction of a bad collectivization policy, collapse of agriculture, famine. In a democracy, that feedback through human rights, freedom of speech, freedom of association, allows for information to flow to correct error. And I think that that is why we talk about participation in the governance debate. Not just participation by party members who shape policy through a committee, but broad society participating, a deliberative, broad thing on what society needs to do and how it needs to go in that direction. So let me stop there on that one. Okay, I'm just going to go through our last two questions. What remedies would one recommend to deal with systemic governance failure? I think you've touched on the municipal level and SOEs. And are there any best international practice other than the Chinese example? And then the last one is about CADA deployments and how does it affect service delivery and how do we propose how we manage this? Okay, two, two linked questions, but let me deal with them separately. The problem of systemic governance failures is very, very difficult because what you have to do is you've got to redesign the engineering of how organizations and institutions function. So it comes back to the whole process of business process engineering, how to put in place basic systems to allow information to flow, to enable accountability, to enable oversight, to enable the steering and responsiveness that I've spoken about. And there are two ways of thinking about this in the literature. The one is technical assistance. So you get experts in who help you design a system. And since the 1960s, countries that have weak governance in terms of systems have tried technical technical assistance, and it hasn't worked. Another way of dealing with this is through a peer learning process. And the OECD practice from post-Second World War is very important here. Countries get together, they discuss best practice, what works for them, why it works for them, how it might work in another country. And then countries with experience support other countries in implementing these new ways of doing things in their countries. So through a consensus peer process, you reform on an ongoing basis your processes that are about governance so that your society is steered better, responds better, and performs better. That idea is embedded in the African peer review mechanism's way of operating in terms of member states in Africa joining the peer review process, and it operates on exactly that principle. And some of the interventions are exactly on how can we support countries who are part of this process in terms of finding the business processes that are best appropriate for the context of the society and the country that we're trying to help build and push forward. And since 2004, I think the APRM has made significant progress 
in pushing forward the systemic improvement of governance in a large number of African countries. But let me leave that one there for the moment. And the last question mentioned was the issue of cadre deployment. At one level, cadre deployment is not objectionable. So every time the Democrats win the presidency from the Republicans, you've got a whole flow of Republican-appointed officials from the White House going back to the university and a whole bunch of Democrat academics going into the White House. And that's cadre deployment. Where it becomes a problem is if you don't have a large pool of politically based technocratic expertise. So the Democrats have their guys, the Republicans have their guys, and they bring those guys in depending on who's in office. But they all are at a basic level of competence in terms of engineering, science, etc. In developing countries, we don't have the luxury of that large pool of technocratic expertise. And I think that's where the problem is. Because you want your minister to be on the same page ideologically with the head of department. It just makes getting things done so much easier instead of having ideological fights at every meeting. So the trick for me in terms of governance is how do you put in place a recruitment and retention policy that allows for politically aligned technocrats to get into public service on the basis of some meritocratic test process. So it's the process of selection that I would argue is the key here. And that's where I think many developing countries, not just African countries across the world, fail. And that means that this political administrative interface where the minister and the head of department clash is always so much more volatile than it ought to be, is because of people possibly being brought in purely on the politics as opposed to the compromise between the politics and the expertise because of the, the absence of a pool of available people to do this, this work. And I think that's the governance failure. It's a sign of ineffective governance in terms of selection processes. It's a sign of ineffective governance in terms of managing that interface through a process. There's too much arbitrary decision-making in that interface, which means that you don't have clear, transparent decision-making, accountable decision-making. Too much discretion because of that. So that would be my answer to that question. Thank you so much, Prof, for your time, for taking all of those questions. There was just a few that we couldn't get through because of time, but we really appreciate it. I will be posting um, this video on our YouTube page, and I will send the link to everyone who RSVP because there's quite a few people who wanted a copy of the session. So, yeah, I'll leave it to you to do the final comments. Well, thank you, Kamantha, for all your hard work in arranging the webinar. And a very big thank you to all the people who've sat through the last hour and 15 minutes listening to me drone on about governance. You can see that it's a bit of a passion of mine. And I appreciate uh, you listening to me. I appreciate your comments. I think the questions were excellent. And I hope that out of this discussion, we go back to our professional environments with a more complex approach to what governance is. I won't say the right approach because there's no consensus on that, but just a better way of thinking about governance so that we can all do governance better in terms of steering our organizations to achieve the goals that we've set out to achieve through better engineering, 
through better custodianship, through better co-production of solution finding and problem identification in terms of how we do things. So that's my hope from this, and I hope that it is achieved. And a very big thank you for your time in listening to us and joining us at the Witt School of Governance for this webinar. This podcast was brought to you by, by, by the Witt School of Governance. For more information, visit their website on www.wits.ac.za/wsg.